Well, hey folks, Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to The Daily Evolver, where we look at the issues of life as if consciousness and culture were evolving. And that is the core insight of integral theory. And today I want to use integral theory to explore what in philosophy and religion are referred to as the ultimate questions, the questions of life and death and the meaning of it all. I mean, we find ourselves on this planet, we look around, we see each other, we see the world, and it's like, okay, <laughs> you know, what are we doing here? Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going, if anywhere? And most important, how are we to live meaningfully in the midst of this mystery and a world that we can see and feel and experience is full of not just tragedy and loss, but also goodness, truth, and beauty. Now, every culture in every place in all of history has wrestled with these questions. In fact, as evolutionaries, we can say that the arising of these questions in the human psyche is the thing that makes us human. At one point, about 200,000 years ago, and this is the time of deep pre-human ancestors, mostly motivated by instinct and habit, but one by one, they gazed into the still water, saw themselves gazing back, and had the first great realization of humanity. I am. I exist. And for those of you who are into spiral dynamics, integral theory, this kicks off the first stage of consciousness, the beige state or the infrared stage of consciousness. And this is where human beings realize that they exist in a world of other. And that's a very fruitful realization, a very exciting realization, but it is not all good. Because when you realize you exist, you realize that one day you're not going to exist. Nor are the people you love. And that kicks off an existential crisis, a crisis of existence that continues to this day now, most of the time, we modern people can ignore the reality of death, thank God. But, of course, it is brought home upon the death of someone we love. And very few people escape that one. And the grief of it is universal, again, to the human condition. And, indeed, some of the first cultural artifacts made by human beings were around funerals and the honoring of the dead, and the continued communion with the dead. And again, for evolutionaries looking for the pattern of development over human history, we see that people have made, you know, many meanings of death and loss, and they arise in patterns. And for early humans, we're talking indigenous and tribal stage, those who passed weren't really gone. They were, along with all of our ancestors, 
alive in a spiritual state that was present and available and uh, one could commune with it. And that understanding evolved until we get to, you know, the bigger patterns of traditionalism where there's a transcendent realm of heaven or nirvana where death liberates us into some kind of eternal life. And then modernity comes along with science and rationality and explains it all away <laughs> and leaves us with a world that is demystified, which is the good part because superstitions and oppressions and cruelties of all kinds lie in that traditional and earlier part of history. And, you know, so we needed to be freed of that. But the downside is modernity disenchanted the world. And then we have a, the postmodern realization of, you know, the interiors and our own psychology and therapy and how the human psyche works and how we can observe ourselves and how we can break through uh, patterns that are holding us back and how we can grow and become more conscious co-creators of our own life. And of course, through all of this is the procreant urge to grow. And we can see it in humanity, and we can also see it and feel it in ourselves. And so that gets us to the integral stage of development. And we see integrals not just a theory, but we see it as a stage of development, a stage of consciousness and culture that is emerging now where we want to consciously reintegrate the great truths of all of the previous stages. And so, you know, I don't know what that looks like exactly. And what I'm doing here at the Daily Evolver is suggesting some ideas and practices to help us find our way there. So in this episode, that's what I want to do. I did it by talking to four of my smartest friends who I have had on the show many times. And we looked at it from the angle of psychotherapy and religion and philosophy. And, you know, there's no truth to finally land on. But there is a process of exploring that gets us somewhere. So that's what we try to do here. First up is Dr. Keith Witt, who has practiced individual and family psychotherapy for over 50 years. He's seen it all. He's helped people through all sorts of the dilemmas of the human condition. And I started by asking him how he, in general, dealt with people who had had a sudden tragedy, loss, death, um, you know, the hard stuff. And here is Dr. Keith. When there's a death, it's a psychic explosion. And it has shockwaves that goes outward. And, and the closer you are to, to ground zero, the more transformed you are by the explosion. Hmm. And you can't help the fact that you're changed by the death. You can direct the way that you transform. Mm -hmm. And a big part of that is allowing grief. 
to happen in the way that um, your unconscious most wants it to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an allowing process. So that if there's uh, a, a death, and particularly a tragic death, particularly a violent death, particularly a murder, which is each, each, each one of those deaths is a more difficult death to process. Mm. Um, deliberate murder is probably one of the hardest. And the people that I've worked with dealing with that have had, um, sp- there's extra levels of, yeah. of having to yeah. deal with it. Yeah. And what you want with the wave is when it comes up, and, and if it's an extreme feeling, allow the feeling, allow the belief, and then go to talk to someone you love about it. It seems to be a cross-cultural impulse to, yes. in grief, you know, get that we space of the people who love them, of the family, yes. together. Yeah. And so you're around people that you love, people that love you, where you can have whatever experience you have. And as you allow it, what comes up is waves of feeling and thought and belief. And what you do is you allow those waves of feeling and thought and belief. And they they have all the elements of grief. They have anger. They have sadness. They have denial. They have rationalization. They have acceptance. They have depression. Uh, um, Often a sense of personal responsibility. Uh, we look back in, in time, we go, if only I would have done something, because our mm-hmm. unconscious wants to change the past, because our unconscious knows we can go in the past, and we can change the past in our, in our own experience of it. And so it wants to go and change the past with the person. And it's a, it's a wonderful time and an important time to be in therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's, it, it's an important time to have somebody where your individual experience is honored, but then you can take that experience and hopefully talk to people you love about it and go, okay, we now have to, our shape has changed as a result of this. And so we want our shape to be a larger shape. We want to be wiser. I've, I've been saying this about trauma for 50 years. Trauma is not an acceptable way to grow as far as I'm concerned. But when it happens, the way to get through it is to find yourself wiser and stronger on the other side. Yeah. Um, the people that were injured by this disaster, many of them will revisit this in one way or another every day for the rest of their lives. And as they do that, hopefully that revisiting becomes more of an act of reverence and love for the people that they've lost and less a, an act of injury and and. Hmm. Uh, and personal diminishment as a result of the trauma that they've gone through. And that's our human birthright. We do that. Tribes naturally do that. They do it through ceremony. And everything that I'm talking about now is, are basically elements of ceremony that we engage in. And ceremonial acts are very important during times like this. People instinctively create altars with pictures and icons and so on. They, create, they, uh, they automatically create rituals of remembrance and of gratitude and of connection with each other and with other people. And these are beautiful things. And as they spontaneously arise, or as they're offered to them from whatever traditions that they have, the ones that resonate will, will, will create that sense of the sacred in your heart. And you go, okay, that sense of, of the sacred has been activated. This is a, a, a ceremony that will continue to serve me, and maybe forever, or maybe for a period of time. And that helps the unconscious reorganize it, because we're not just reorganizing ourselves, 
reorganizing ourselves in relationship with everyone else and with our family especially and we're reorganizing our relationship with the person who's died um, and the transition of uh, consciousness from from being alive into being dead is such a huge one that there are m millions of words written about it and, and ceremonies from every place and somehow making sense of I want to stay connected but I'm not connected to that person alive on the other side I'm connected to whatever they become on the other side um, and and in the midst of that as we go through the despair or the grief or, or the loss or the rage you allow it you you understand it you look for an integral understanding to have larger con larger contexts um, and that helps guide us through and then it helps us guide other people through because an important part of healing from a disaster is helping the other people that are injured oh, uh, the disaster yeah yeah and then you become a different person yeah and this is growth in general yeah and and, and it's you know that the, the anger is important because it motivates us um, to action um, but also, it's it's dangerous uh, um, to get angry at the culture because it's not growing faster. Um, doesn't help us change the culture. To get angry at myself because somehow I didn't magically help this other person not die doesn't help things. Um, to get angry at myself for my grieving process. Some people grieve for a, a few weeks or a month and then feel ashamed that they didn't grieve more. Some people grieve for a couple of years and they can't get through it. And then they feel frightened and broken because the grief is taking so long. And the answer to that is that everyone grieves for for certain kinds of losses in their own way. And the 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 one thing that's in common is you feel the waves, you allow them, you talk to people you love about them, you work with someone who can help guide you um, through the process. You feel what you feel. Yeah. Next, I talked to my dear friend, Namali Pereira, a leading integral coach and teacher who shares the story of how the death of her father transformed her. We started the conversation with her telling me about a book she had just read called Finding Meaning by David Kessler. Now, David Kessler is one of the world's leading experts on grief, having co-authored with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross the iconic book on grief and grieving, where they lay out the stages of grief that most of us are familiar with, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And he fills out that cascade with a sixth stage of grief that he calls finding meaning which he says can transform grief into a more peaceful and hopeful experience. And it turns out that there was an interview with David Kessler in the Wall Street Journal that very morning. And in it, he describes his sixth stage of grief, meaning. And he describes it by saying, loss is what happens in life. Meaning is what we make happen after loss. We have the false idea that our work is to make grief smaller. Our work is to become bigger and grow around the grief. Sometimes when people hear me talk of meaning, they tell me there is no meaning in a murder 
or a child dying of cancer or a brain tumor or a pandemic. I say, correct. The meaning is in us and what we do after. Meaning occurs in the small moments. Maybe you become a more generous person. Maybe you become a more determined person. Maybe you become a kinder person. Doing so means finding a way to commemorate or honor your loved one. So here's Namali's story. To me, that's where a lot of my healing really happened was eventually finding meaning. I think a part of my grieving process sometimes, like the actual practice of it, was to get in my car and just drive around this busy city of Colombo, which is where I, I grew up and lived. One day, I just randomly turned into a, a temple, a Buddhist temple, and uh, was, you know, had my first sort of meditation there, yep. which then led me to meditation retreats in these really, uh, you know, off the beaten track places in Sri Lanka, and, which is where I discovered a Wilbur book. So I think finding meaning for me meant really entering a spiritual path. Mm -hmm. I don't even know how I knew to do it back then because I had no interest prior to my dad's death in psychology, spirituality, philosophy, none of it. I was in the fashion design industry in Colombo. <laughs> you know? I had Vogue magazines from America and all over the world. That was my Bible. But I knew that I had to let my grief be felt fully. I knew that very clearly that I wasn't going to escape from this, that I wasn't going to um, rescue myself from it. I was going to support myself and coach myself through through this mm. like I just fully allowed myself to feel the loss of my hero, my dad. Mm. Yeah. You know? And without any kind of because now I hear people saying that, you know, through psychology and you know, grief counseling and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But back then living in Sri Lanka with no background, I don't know how I knew to do that somehow. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I have no idea who said it, but that grief is the loss of a dream. But it's, Would that be true for you? A loss of a dream with yeah, your dad? Yeah, I think so. Of yeah. being known, of having had a chance to know him more. Yeah. You know, there's just yes. a lot of things like that. I think whenever we grieve something, it's, it's more than what we have the actual loss of a person or a friendship or something that we have lost and what we grieve are the memories what we could have done mm -hmm. what we could have known mm -hmm. together with this other person or being or, mm -hmm. or event or whatever you know mm -hmm. yeah. what fun i could have had yeah yeah you know, what we could have shared yeah. it's it's those are all dreams that they could have gotten to know me yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely felt that. I, I still think that because I'm so different now. Yeah. I, I would love to have have my dad know me now as yeah. I am. Yeah. yeah. So where is he? Hmm. And how do you experience him now? 
mm-hmm. or do you or uh, yeah so what decades later here now mm-hmm. yeah it's very real somehow my love for him is more real now in the sense that i love all of his genius and his brilliance and how much he was his dedication to his profession to his patients and to us um, and all of that and he was a flawed man as well and now i love him more fully as mm. you know, after it's it's almost like i loved him and didn't love him for my expectations when right. he was alive you know and after death and after years have gone by now i can accept him and you know again find meaning even in the ways in which he was flawed yeah um yeah you know? no it's a yeah. uh, it's your love grew your yeah. love matured yeah isn't that something yeah yeah Thank you, Namali. You can find more from Namali at her website, practicalintegral.com. My next conversation is with another dear friend and integral sister who I have been working with for close to 20 years, Diane Musho Hamilton. Diane is an ordained Buddhist priest in the Soto Zen tradition and the author of three terrific books, Compassionate Conversations, The Zen of You and Me, and Everything is Workable. I started the conversation with Diane by asking her how she herself deals with grief, and especially how she deals with people who are grieving or traumatized in her capacity as a Buddhist priest. Well, I think part of the reason why I think the Buddhist um, Buddhist training really appealed to me as a young woman was because it the a- emphasis, there's a little bit of a paradox in the Buddhist tradition in the sense of putting you directly in relationship to your experience. You know, what are you actually experiencing here and now? You know, if, if you're in the face of the loss, you know, if you're facing loss, if you've lost someone you loved or someone's died, you know, what do you, what are you actually aware of? Well, you're aware of a tremendous amount of love. You're aware of fear around missing them. You're aware of grief and this tremendous heartache that wells up and washes over us. We're aware of a question of where are they? We're aware of what arises in our dreams about them. So all, all of that is on the table. And when we relate to our experience super directly, it's so rich and so full. And I think the the, there's a whole doctrine of reincarnation that runs in some ways from the Hindu tradition into the Buddhist tradition. But the Buddha himself, as I understand it, basically said, I, there's a, a kind of a story that apparently he would use about how if, some, if, a, if you come across someone who's been struck by an arrow, you're not asking where did the arrow come from, you're actually attending to that suffering heart. Mm-hmm. And so I think the Buddhists himself directed us immediately into our full experience and when we go into our full experience somehow it answers and relaxes the existential grasping you know the the grief itself is potent and meaningful by its nature you know if you're if you're having dreams and you're having synchronicities and then you acknowledge those as well as part of your reality one of the things about doing a solitary stationary practice like that is that one has to have 
some kind of opening into soothing the nervous system. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, we all get soothed in very different ways. We get soothed by having a purpose, serving others. And we get soothed by eating. We get soothed by touch. We get soothed by alcohol. We get soothed by all kinds of things. And I think on the cushion, in order to really deepen, there's a way in which we have to kind of recognize that system that is in hyper alert. So I would want to, as a teacher, first kind of coach you into how to calm yourself before mm-hmm. you can and, and again the practices are different people need to understand this you know in mm-hmm. zen in zen we 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 actually begin of course by noticing thoughts and noticing sensations and at a certain point we take what we call the backward step and we identify with awareness itself rather than with the objects of awareness so that's a very you know that's a different style practice you know vipassana goes towards the very minute experience to see that there's sort of nothing there Whereas Zen just says, step back, you know, turn around counterintuitively, just let go of the objects completely. Yeah. So yeah. different instruction, different outcomes. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm not yeah. a good meditator. Let's be clear. I'm, I'm oh, just a, please die. I do it. I've done it forever, but I have no talent whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're very faithful to it. I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. And I yeah. mean, all I can tell you is you look great doing it. <laughs> That's what I care about. I mean, isn't that something? Doesn't that count? <laughs> well, I, w- I once had a, a Zen master in, in Europe tell me that I was a, a strong sitter because I grew up riding horses. And yeah. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. There was something about how I how I inhabit my spine. Yeah, that I he think said, it's true. Yeah, he said, he said that. And I, that made yeah. sense to me because that I've upright. I've sat in many retreats with you and you've always been very inspiring. But I'm not, I, I honestly, I mean, what is enlightenment? That's another big existential question. Well, what do we... let, let's get there in a second. But <laughs> yeah. in regarding the soothing. Yes. So I'm mm-hmm. sitting there and I'm just, you know, feeling this mm-hmm. anxiety and it's, you know, invaded mm-hmm. my body and I can see it but minutely, mm-hmm. you know, do I breathe love into it? Do I just continue to penetrate it? I mean, okay, let's, what... let's just try for a minute. So sit up a little bit in All right. chair. A little bit of back and forth on the old sits bones. I like mm-hmm. giving people the experience of the buoyancy in the body. So rotating mm. on the pelvis, you know. You see already, look. Do you see yeah. how you found your relaxation response? I, I it was wish... that fast, dude. I... You felt that relaxation response. Yeah. Okay, so, so now let's just allow ourselves to breathe for a moment. And... You know, we've done this a lot, but I would say as the voice of being, what do you notice? Not as Jeff, but just as being, what do you notice? Spaciousness, Mm -hmm. openness, clarity, Mm -hmm. uh, an echo of you in the screen, in the pixels. Nice, Nice. good. (laughs) A little bit of joy. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Joy and pleasure. Yeah, good. And then I guess the next question that I would ask is, um, can you feel, and I know you can, can you feel the part of your awareness that's unconditioned, that's not bound by habits, by beliefs, just, you know, habitual. It's just utterly free, unconditioned space. Uh, Yeah, there you go. Yep, yep, yep. So it's just continuously cultivating this again and again. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's it. For a Zen person, 
<laughs> you know. call that a religion? <laughs> no, we don't actually. That's why. Right, that's why I like it because <laughs> it's not a. Well, it actually is. I mean, the Soto Zen wow. school functions like a religion. Yeah. So as we do that, um, we just we keep coming back. So we have intrusive thoughts, or thoughts we're arise. In just mm-hmm. in it, we're in some sort of a trauma crisis mm-hmm. situation. Sure. Do we do this then? I, sure. I guess we do. We, well, we do whatever we can. So let me, okay. let me be clear. So right now, you know this, but I'm going through a hard time, everybody, because my 32-year-old son who has Down syndrome has recently begun to hear voices. And, um, you know, that for me as his mother is frightening. It's um, provocative. I think about, oh, no, you know, he's, his thyroid doesn't work. He has sugar diabetes. His pancreas doesn't work. And I think, oh, no, now his brain's not working or his brain's starting to give. And, mm. oh, shoot, he's only 32. And, oh, poor Mm -hmm. Uh, mother child you know he's Mm -hmm. 32 whatever so right now I would say I sit because I have such a long-term practice of sitting it's super helpful but right now I'm borrowing from the Tibetan tradition which you and I both studied in and I'm doing some of my practice with uh, Avalokiteshvara Chenrezig I'm just visualizing Chenrezig and um, doing that being a, a Buddhist deity yeah, the, the deity of compassion or Kanzian and Zen, you know, and I'm just kind of letting myself be held by this image of just infinite or uh, let's call it primordial compassion, the compassion that arises naturally in relationship to suffering. Suffering and compassion are, they're always together, right? So I've been mm-hmm. doing that just because that actually soothes me a little bit more than right now because I'm having to work with my fight or flight terror futurizing nutty oh my god why did i ever marry my ex and you know past future (laughs) yeah Yeah. fear and regret i just want to sit with this big old bodhisattva let her take care of me right now Uh uh-huh so this is just a different style of course but this is everybody knows this is oh wait 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 there we go okay and what's her name this is this is kuan yin in china or kanzan in japan uh-huh. So Kanzian is the Bodhisattva of compassion. I mean, check uh-huh. it out. You know yeah. how are you do- how are you doing, Kanzian? I'm doing well. Yeah. What what can't you handle, Kanzian? I can handle everything. So wow. that's that's helpful to me. Yeah, I mean, can I ask you? How do you? What do you think is the ontological status of Kanzian? I mean, is that a real deity that is other than you that would be there whether you're there or not, or is it? the manifestation of your own inner wisdom or, well, or from what? A, from an integral perspective, Tetra fucking arising. <laughs> it's Tetra arising. Okay. That's it's a little technical me. term. For, it's, it's out there. It's yeah. between us. You know, it's yeah. like, it's, it's within my own first person, completely yeah. subjective, but there is, I have magical experiences. I have experiences that uh, case in point, right? So I'm going along and I'm just struggling like crazy and I can't get a psychiatrist for the life of me. And by the way, everybody apologize for swearing. I just like to drop the F. <laughs> <every once laughs> I'm old, I'm old fashioned. And, uh, <laughs> and then, and then, uh, so I'm, you know, I'm trying to, you know, you can't get in for eight months and you know, they'll take you in the emergency room, but then they send you to the same, same day clinic. And then you show up at the same day clinic, but you can't come in because it's COVID. And in the meantime, my son's hearing voices. So at a certain point, I started slowing down and 
being more fully with it. And my friend called me, who's a, a practitioner, and she gave me the name of a person in town who does, who's a pharmacologist who has a, a business called Foundational Medicine. He's really good at sleep, the gut, and making sure the meds are managed and they're not negatively interacting with each other. Mm-hmm. He introduced me to a psychiatric nurse. Turns out she has a Down syndrome daughter. So oh. it, these connections started happening, and that's when I feel something bigger than me going on, you know, because we you know, that's why integral is so awesome because it lets us locate, okay, what's my subjectivity? What am I noticing that maybe is actually in the third person, even though I can't verify it? Is it ontologically out there? Well, certainly feels like something is, you know, I feel very supported. Yeah. And humans have uh, experienced that since day one. And I'll tell you you what, guys, here, here's the shift for me, the shift for me between an existential not knowing I mean, I'm not knowing, but a nihilism, right? Is that I just also see the people that have cultivated their spiritual lives. And generally speaking, they seem to be happier. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the guys with the near-death experiences. You know, the scientists all say, oh, it's just what happens in the brain when you die. And I'm like, maybe so, but look how it changed their life. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, that's a, a term that I always liked. Uh, from integral uh, that things are maybe relative to what you were talking about earlier, but self-authenticating or the experience itself, Mm -hmm. you you feel like you're bigger. Yeah. You've grown. Exactly. And to disabuse yourself of it would be to diminish yourself. Yeah. And so that's good enough for me. Yeah. Especially when I don't have to, and this is another great thing about integral. It's like, take, take the teachings and run. You know, I, I don't have to believe the no. doctrines. I, no, I can no, see no, them no. all as art forms. Yeah, but, precisely. You know, what is, you know. No, are what, they mind expanding? Do they open your experience? Exactly. We always said they're psychoactive. It's, yeah, you know, yeah. they're very well, psychoactive. First, second, and third person, too. It's mm-hmm. the, the, there's a really nice back pocket categor, categorization mm-hmm. with integral. First mm-hmm. person being our own interior universe. Mm-hmm. You know, this big Diane, this big Jeff, this big yeah. all of us, and it's just there. infinite. Yeah. And then the second person are relationships. Mm-hmm. And this is where I love Steve McIntosh, because he mm-hmm. talks about how that's just built into the universe. Second uh-huh. person is built in. And Ken does, Ken does too. Yeah. yeah. You know, and so uh, can I feel seen and loved by a loving other, a loving parent? Yes. Can I relate to spirit guides? I, I can, you know, as it turns out. Um, you know, so that's, that's fun. That's a whole new ball game. There were a decade or so where I completely ruled that out. And I'm glad I don't anymore. Yeah, no. And third, <laughs> why, why rule it out? <laughs> well, I became an atheist. It was like I, I threw the baby took- and everything out with the bathwater. Uh, yeah. Making a stand against this. Uh, yeah, it's against this God thing. And of course, a lot of people do. And a lot of people yeah. in the integral world, they don't have a, you know, the second person is still a little too quaint, a little too fraught. Well, if you've ever had your heart broken, you're not going towards second person anytime soon. Yeah. So no. Yeah. yeah. A broken heart is an open heart. I always remember that from Trumpa. But anyway, they just to fill out the, the map here. The third person is the spiritual uh, experience of this world and nature and the great manifest reality 
mm-hmm. that we find ourselves in, mm-hmm. which is so beautiful. Yeah. And unknowable and ungraspable. Yeah. 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 And mysterious. Yeah. 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 So in terms of Kanzian, I would say I, I can recognize what feels like compassion in myself, in my relationship, like talking to you mm-hmm. about our lives. And there's been so much compassion flow between us over the years. Yeah. And then true. I sometimes feel like I'm, you know, I'm being blessed with compassionate activity that I just am so grateful for, like getting connected to these two people. Yeah. And that's not, that's not to say that, uh, I don't know. I just yeah. feel like that there is a there is a place for that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you Diane Mushul Hamilton. Next up is my dear friend Steve McIntosh, integral philosopher, who comes at this from more of a theistic point of view. One that includes a creator god, eternal life, in a multi-lifetime adventure of perfecting the self and the universe itself. I really love it. I love hearing him talk about this sort of thing. So here's Steve on a theistic response to the ultimate questions. So one of the questions that people have when they lose somebody is what happened to them? You know, and of course, one of the big existential questions, maybe the big existential question of humanity is what happens to me, you know? (laughs) So what do you know about that, about life after death? Well, um, I'm behind the veil like the rest of us. I don't claim to have any special knowledge uh, of life after death. I mean, in some ways, uh, there's always reasonable doubt about whether this body being the end of things when it's gone. So I think any, any assumptions about life after death are first and foremost part of what we might call a faith adventure. In other words, that, that I, I choose to believe this for a variety of reasons, some of which are rational and some of which are more uh, intuitive or, or you know, coming from, a, from a, a different perspective than reason. Um, but nevertheless, these things combine, maybe one strand by themselves in, in my personal belief for life after death wouldn't be strong. But when you take all these strands together, it becomes a braided cable of, of significant strength, I would say. So um, for me, in, in terms of my faith in an afterlife, a lot of it comes down to this, this sense that my relationships are my eternal possessions that my family and my loved ones and my friends, that, that these relationships are not gonna go for naught, that there's a way in which they continue and that there's a continuity, even though I'm not, um, I don't ascribe to any particular organized religion, I, I have a strong uh, conviction about yeah. life after death. And, and what we're talking about here is a personal uh, a survival of death. So yeah, like that I remain on the other side. Yeah. And, and I mean, so, so just to, to, to iterate the additional strands in my cable of belief on this matter, um, I think from a philosophical perspective, I don't think that the universe makes sense unless there's life after death, because I think the universe is full of goodness, truth, and beauty, and this is the direction of evolution. But if the evil in the world and human suffering is there's no chance for redemption, right? The people who've suffered horrifically 
the only way that that could be reconciled with a you know a loving universe where goodness prevails is if there's a, a chance chance at redemption in an afterlife, right? That those who've been you know horrifically abused, if in the scheme of our universe ascent, our spiritual career, the suffering that we experience in this life becomes the inventory of our comparative joy in the next. You know, I mean, the, the idea there is that the greatest affliction is to have never been afflicted because mm -hmm. the affliction, the suffering that you experience is what allows you to experience bliss by comparison, especially in an afterlife, you know, a kind of a fullness of this life being, you know, you've touched all the way down to the ground of the, of, of that which is non-existent, right? That which is, you know, partiality into entropy death. And now you can experience the living truth of eternal life. Um, you know, these are things that are, uh, that are deeply confirmed by the nature of the upward current of the good itself. Yeah. Uh, and by the, the, the way that any kind of um, uh, theodicy or explanation for the evil of the world, uh, that, that life after death um, takes care of it beautifully and perfectly and which all can be redeemed. And even the most horrific things on earth can be put into perspective as being um, part of the journey that everyone gets to overcome and the overcoming. In other words, those who've suffered the most will in some ways be seen in the afterlife as the lucky ones, you know, because yeah. they're the ones who get the biggest ability. It's, to it's like Jesus, Jesus said, the last shall be the last shall be first. Yeah. Yeah. So besides those uh, faith based reasons. There's also a compelling library of thousands of reports of near-death experience. And what's remarkable is that many of the people who've had these experiences and reported them in detail in ways that are remarkably confirmatory of other experiences never even knew there was a thing called near-death experience and never read the literature, had never been exposed to the reports, and yet the reports are the same, right? And, and so, of course, because that is very disturbing to a materialistic worldview, that's, there have been all kinds of arguments marshaled against trying to contain that virus of faith from breaking out and ruining the world for atheism. But I think that ultimately <laughs> uh, that, that these, this evidence is, is damn compelling. I mean, when somebody can be dead, clinically dead, where their brain waves are stopped and they're observing the operating room in which their body is lying, I can later tell you how many nurses came in and out and exactly what tools were on the operating table. It starts to get spookily real in terms of the ability to perceive without your brain. But again, I'm not relying on that by itself. I just think it's compelling. Um, I also think that uh, there's, there's a very interesting body of evidence been compiled. It began with the uh, the book by the academic, the academic psychiatrist Ian Stevenson, uh, 20 cases suggestive of, of reincarnation. And Stevenson at UVA developed a whole department of people who are gathering. And just like we now have um, thousands of, of documented reports of near-death experiences, we now have at least hundreds of reports of children uh, whereby they, they, have an experience of another person's life. And they're able to recount details of that person's life, including their death experience, in ways that are that are unexplainable. Wow. You know, I mean, maybe ESP explains. I don't necessarily think we have to conclude reincarnation as a theological doctrine, 
But the fact that there has there is living experience, which can be sometimes tuned into by young people, they, they eventually grow out of their their being uh, in touch with someone else's experience. But um, the fact that that experience can be accessed uh, is is a very interesting yeah. thought, you know. But ultimately, I don't believe in life after death because of logical arguments. I believe in it because uh, it's something that I know in my bones. Yeah. Well, I always love, you quote somebody who says that some things have to be, what is it? Uh, loved to be oh, seen. Yeah, yeah. Blaise Pascal, yes. right? the, the uh, famous uh, theistic philosopher. His quote is that human things need to be known in order to be loved, but divine things need to be loved in order to be known. In the sense that your faith, your devotion, your reverence, your 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 connection at the level of, of being to these truths is a way of loving them. You know, you know the, the outworn word worship works pretty well in that context. Yeah. In the sense that um, that communing and, and allowing the loving goodness of being to wash over you is a way of knowing it that is is part of this faith, faith as a technique of perception for divine reality, not belief in things unseen, but, but uh, 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 knowing at the level of being that goes beyond your reasoning mind. Well, so well said. <laughs> Jeez. All right. All right. Well, thank you, Steve McIntosh, Diane Hamilton, Namali Pereira, and Keith Witt for your insights into this mystery of being human and loving and losing and grieving and the beauty, truth, and goodness that is embedded in the whole updraft of human history and evolution. Wow. You know, again, it's not about finding the answer. It's about deepening and re-enchanting the question, opening ourselves up to our direct experience uh, and uh, opening ourselves up to the wisdom of humanity and the wisdoms of history. So anyway, more to come. I mean, there's many more angles to look at these questions from, and I might just do that, you know. So anyway, thank you so much for listening to The Daily Evolver, and you can find all my stuff at dailyevolver.com, and we'll see you next time.